Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Morena, everyone. I hope you've had a fab start to your week. And this week, I'm super excited to bring to you my conversation with Brad Kearns. Now, Brad is someone who will need no introduction to anyone who is well-versed in the paleo primal scene with Mark's Daily Apple, who knows all about primal blueprint, keto reset, keto for life, etc, etc, because Brad has been involved in all of that stuff. Brad is the New York Times best-selling author, he's an elite athlete, podcast host and health expert. He's a Guinness World Record holder in speed golf, USA Masters track and field, all-American high jumper, and he's a former US national champion and number three world-ranked professional triathlete. So Brad was around in the day when triathlon was a new and up-and-coming sport and we chat all about what it was like to be in the sport at that time and then how that kind of really platformed Brad to head on into the next phase of his career with regards to being an advocate for physical activity to then hook up with Mark Sisson and develop the primal blueprint write the books that have been really I suppose life-changing for so many people who've jumped on board and and gotten hold of them. Brad is also the podcast host of Get Over Yourself podcast but now is the BRAD podcast which covers all aspects of healthy happy living and we talk about his transition if you like from a, a health perspective away from the conventional nutrition and physical activity approach to the practices which he follows now and he's just such an enthusiastic guy and shares so much information about uh, all of these things. We also cover off his MOFO mission. Now MOFO stands for Male Optimization Formula with Organs which is a supplement he co-created with a supplement company that as the name suggests helps men kind of get back into line with their health and well-being and we talk about Brad's MOFO mission and subsequent kind of YouTube clips that details out 10 objectives which he recommends people should follow to help optimize health but we talk about so much more than that as well we talk about Brad's own morning routines his dietary information and just what he feels it takes to live a healthy happy life and Brad is such a genuine guy and it was such a pleasure to chat to him and I will incorporate links to everything that we discuss that you'd like more information on in the show notes and you can get hold of Brad at www.bradkearns.com and also if you check him out Brad Kearns one on Instagram you'll be able to find him there as well so enjoy my conversation with Brad Kearns. Kia ora Brad, so awesome to be sitting here finally able to kind of hook up our schedules to to chat today. Um, this is, it feels like it's been a long time coming and I have to say I'm such a fan of your work that I'm a little bit like fangirl that I'm actually like sitting here talking to you. It's very cool. 
Oh my gosh, what an honor! I, I'm uh, I'm touched, and especially you being all the way in my 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 first or second favorite country. I mean, I, I like America since I live here, but you can't beat New Zealand. It's one of my favorite places I've ever been in the world. And if I were kicked out of the USA, I tell people you would probably find me down there. So, well, mate, if we will have you, I mean, coronavirus and all. In mm. fact, I was. Um, thinking about, and I sent you through like a, a brief kind of, of of what I'd like to talk about with you. And I mean, there are just so many things that I could talk to you about, Brad, I just wouldn't have known where to have started. Um, however, I was thinking about you as we, me and my husband, Baz, we were cycling down to the pub to grab a beer last night, uh, wine, actually not beer, and then cycling home. And I thought, I wonder whether Brad would consider this as a bit of an optimization technique because you were about optimizing kind of life and hormones and, you know, a whole host of things. And I'm like, to exercise post-alcohol, it's probably quite a good approach, really, if you were going to do anything. Uh, I don't know about the bike uh, and falling over. It might be better to to be, be on foot, but that's an interesting idea. I mean, we know that if you go and do a walk after a meal, that the insulin response is muted by up to 50%. It has a huge difference uh, just for getting moving or, you know, dropping and doing a set of deep squats if you happen to have a, a bite of sugar. So yeah, if you're going to go to the pub, you might as well burn it off right away. Yeah, that's what I thought. And then I, I thought, oh, I reckon that Brad would probably, aside from the fact that there was, you know, wheels involved and um, there was a potential for injury, um, probably <laughs> thinking that was quite a good strategy. Brad, I've been following your work for many, many years in the health and wellness space. And I absolutely love the information that you put out there and your enthusiasm, like you're a joy to listen to. And as I understand it, you've, you know, you've really evolved across your kind of from an early life as a track and field athlete to a professional triathlete, a really a big advocate for physical activity kind of for all, and then delve more into the primal diet lifestyle stuff also so one of the things I'm really interested in is how you kind of transitioned from your early athletic career into advocacy for for physical activity because despite the fact that obviously as an athlete you you were into it your background was much more of an economic background wasn't it or an accounting background Right. I was studying accounting in school at University of California, Santa Barbara, and enjoying being on the running team until I got hurt too many times. And then I joined the cycling team and got into the sport of triathlon while I was still a student and was having so much fun, you know, barely finding the time to go to class because you could always meet somebody who was going out for a bike ride or, or swimming in the ocean. And it was just a, a great time. And I, I enjoyed the campus very much. The listeners might not know, but it's, you know, situated right on on the cliffs overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And so oh, wow. there's a lot of recreation. It's one of the most beautiful college campuses in the world. Uh, but then I was, uh, you know, th this great tragedy occurred in my life uh, around that time, which was graduation, because I <laughs> left the campus and then had to go put on a suit and tie and drive for an hour every single day in rush hour traffic each way to my job in downtown Los Angeles high rise building oh. at the world's largest accounting firm. And of course, I studied economics, accounting, and this was my, my path, I guess 
yes, because the world told me this is what you do. You go to college, you get a degree and you get a job. But I was absolutely miserable starting with the very first day of work with all the new recruits who were so excited to learn about how the company operated and, and how to check your voicemail and, and the retirement package that they offered that was so generous. And I was sitting in this room in this hotel where they're, you know, the trainer is showing you the slides and you're looking through the big notebook. And I'm like, what is going on? I, I want to go back to the beach and, and, and go to my previous lifestyle as a student with no cares in the world and shorts and a t-shirt and uh, you know, biking all over for your transportation. So that job only lasted uh, 11 and a half weeks. And then I announced my retirement from the firm and my, my declaration that, uh, that I told them that I was going to, to move on uh, to become a professional triathlete. And I remember the guy like laughing in my face because most people leave the firm because they got headhunted to work in corporate accounting and have a better opportunity. And I'm like, no, I'm going to quit and go ride my bike all day. <laughs> so it was kind of a, a crazy thing to do at that time because I'd been trained and invested a lot in my education and all that. But you have to, you know, go with your, uh, your, your, your calling and your, your instincts in life, your intuition yeah. And it was kind of a crazy notion, especially at that time, because this is in the 80s and triathlon was not a big sport like it is now with the Olympians and the training centers and the economic opportunity is very clearly presented. If you go fast enough, you can, you know, join the, the Kiwi national team and, and get support from the sponsors and travel around. Uh, at that time, it was kind of a grassroots sport, mainly in California. Uh, but I was just so excited to be out of that high rise building and getting on my bicycle every day and pedaling for hours and hours and learning the new challenge of, of picking up and becoming a good swimmer and integrating all the training. And so I was in this wonderful position in my life where I loved what I was doing every day. I, I had what I call a pure motivation. In, mm. in other words, I was motivated by the pure love of the activity and the personal challenge and the process of improvement rather than having these uh, impure outside influences that we commonly have when we're pursuing a career and we want to make more money or we want to be recognized we want to get the promotion or an athlete wants to win and get the glory and, and the contract and uh, the adulation from outside. Uh, but no one knew who I was. I was obscure. I was finishing way back in the pack in 24th place or 18th place or 13th place. And I'd get so excited if, uh, you know, I'd go to a local race and get fourth or something. And so I was always plotting my own improvement and my own, impro my own progress. So I always had something uh, to look forward to and to celebrate and to be grateful for. Even though I wasn't making any money, I wasn't being uh, uh, ranked or have any attention paid to me, I was on this wonderful path of progress where I would make good decisions every day because I didn't feel that, uh, that pressure on me to accomplish something because everyone was counting on me because I had sponsors paying for me. So if I was tired one day, I'd wake up and I'd pedal around a little bit and I'd go, you know, this is not a good day for me to, to do meaningful training. I'd turn around and go home and take a nap and eat a big meal. And mm. this kind of uh, simple, basic, non-technology, no coaching, uh, no biofeedback devices, just this basic approach turned out to be extremely effective. And here I am talking about it decades later with all the technology we could ever dream of and all these things in place. And, and they, you know, they prick your finger at the, at the training uh, center and the coach looks at your lactate levels and, and plots a program for you with the escalation of your intensity and all that stuff, I still feel is missing the point where if we can cultivate this pure motivation to pursue our goals uh, for the right 
right reasons and to have that smile on our face, whether we win or lose or get our butt kicked or, or make a wrong turn on the bicycle course and we just learn from the experience and, and get up the next day with a positive attitude. These things serve me so tremendously well. And I know this is a long string here, but uh, we'll get to the, the end of my first season as a rookie professional racer. And I was running out of money. I was delivering pizzas in the evening to try to you know scrap together uh, the funds to take uh, an airplane to the, to the next race. Uh, but I went to this big race at the end of the year and I, I defeated the top two ranked athletes in the world. It was the, the best duathlete and the best triathlete, Scott Molina. He's now nice. been adopted by the Kiwis with uh, being married to Aaron Baker, one of the all-time greats. But he was the triathlete of the year that year. And he was doing this late season race against the top duathletes like Kenny Souza, the number one guy in the world. And I had this wonderful race coming out of nowhere. And it, it was the, you know, one of the greatest upsets they, they seen on the pro circuit because I was a complete uh, nobody. And mm -hmm. these were the very top guys. Uh, but that single event, you know, it really changed my life and it thrust me into uh, this path where I realized that, you know, I could make a go of it on mm. the pro career. I, I could have economic viability uh, because now, you know, if I'm, if I'm recognized as being one of the contenders, I can get sponsors, there's prize money. And so uh, that was a big one because it confirmed that this pure motivation, this love of the sport and this positive attitude was something that, you know, could really work. Now, the, the, the wonderful thing would be to say that I, I, I remained in this state of mind for the next nine years uh, mm -hmm. competing in this cutthroat, uh, you know, uh, the career as an athlete. But what happened was now when things started to get serious and people started to pay attention to me and I started to feel some pressure and some expectation and have to answer to the business aspects of being an athlete and the sponsors and the demands and the places that you're required to do and things you, they want you to, to be, um, that's when I had a tendency to struggle as an athlete. And I'd try to force the process of fitness to happen too quickly and get overtrained and tired and negative and, 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 you know, bring these negative energy into my life. And so I had to constantly like recalibrate and mm. try to tone things down. That's why I, I, you know, I titled my podcast, get over yourself. I just recently changed the name to the B rad podcast, but getting over myself was the biggest challenge and also the most valuable thing I did as an athlete and as a person and, and carrying those lessons over for the rest of my life as a parent, as a business person, uh, whatever we're trying to do, you know, there's a way to compete with great intensity and great passion and want to win really badly and have all these goals, but you have to get over yourself in the process and cultivate that pure motivation. Mm, and I feel like you're, um, cause I was going to ask you, you know, what were some of the challenges or the lessons that you learned during that time, but I don't need to because you've actually just probably <laughs> highlighted some of the, you know, the main ones, really. The end. Thank you for listening, everyone. That's Brad's <laughs> story in four minutes and 12 seconds of nonstop talking. Yay. <laughs> but, um, you know, it feels like it's, you, know, you would have been quite young to, to have gotten what you got from that. Like what you're talking about, about that kind of that, where that motivation should come from. These are the kind of things that you hear people talking about in their mid forties, mid fifties, not, <laughs> not really, you know, like, people in the young yeah. 20s right well that's the really cool thing about being an athlete uh, i think the the greatest value is that you get to learn the lessons of life and, and success and failure in the most intense and dramatic 
manner imaginable. Mm -hmm. And if you're in the corporate setting where you just got passed over for a promotion and it wasn't fair because you do better work, but that person was more of a suck up. And so you can complain and tell stories and uh, maybe get in your own way without even realizing it. But yeah. in athletics, you know, you, you go to the race and you, you cross the finish line and there's a time showing. And if you did a minute, an hour 48 and the winner did one hour, 46, 25, that means you're, uh, you know, two minutes and and uh, one minute and 35 seconds behind uh, the standard that you, you've set a goal for. And so yeah. you got to go home and process that and realize that, gee, I lost all my time in the swim because I was getting lazy and didn't feel like going uh, during the cold winter months to the swimming pool and, and freezing my butt off on the pool deck. And so, you know, these things that we're forced to reckon with, there's no excuses. There's no way to talk yourself out of it. Mm. I mean, I guess there is, but those are the people that are, you know, falling in the back of the pack rather than the great champions and getting to associate with guys like Molina and Aaron Baker and, uh, you know, all, all the leading athletes in the world that were, were part of my life. It was amazing because these people had, you know, the success formula in place and the discipline and the motivation and the absolute resiliency to, to not complain or uh, do things that most humans engage in as, as a routine uh, matter of course throughout our day. Oh, it's too cold. Oh, it's too hot. Oh, uh, you know, I didn't have the right equipment. You know, the, the best guys had nothing to say except for uh, congratulations to the winner if they lost and if they yeah. won it co confirms that you know they're all about going out there and competing yeah amazing and so obviously you you know you were in the sport when it was a really young sport and as I understand it kind of injury might have curtailed how you could have progressed as the sport itself progressed like because you never really went on into the longer distance stuff, did you, Brad? <laughs> I did uh, uh, plenty. And I found that I was more, I would say, genetically adapted to being uh, in the short, more explosive events. I mean, everything's endurance when you're talking about triathlons, but yeah. uh, the sprint triathlon distance, when we occasionally raced at half of our normal Olympic distance, um, I was almost undefeated. I, I was, you know, I was so explosive and I could power through for a 10 mile bike ride better than even the 24.8 mile, the 40 K that we usually ran. And amazing. then when you get into Ironman, I feel like you have a different type of athlete that has that amazing endurance capability to get up and train every single day for five or six or seven hours. And yeah. that was not me, Mickey. I was the guy that, you know, maybe could hang on the weekend if we did some, you know, really extraordinary stuff. But then on Monday and Tuesday, I'd be the guy sleeping in till 1030 and walking yeah. around stiff and sore and not feeling like even going out of my house. And so I think you have to go with your strengths. And uh, if you look at, you know, track and field, um, you know, Nick Willis runs the 1500 meters, not the 400, not yeah. the 200 and, yeah. and not the marathon either. So uh, I was definitely an Olympic distance or sprint distance athlete, but I got fifth in, in the world championships one year in Nice in the long course. Amazing. And that was a six hour event. And in the Ironman, I, um, I, I have the course record for uh, the young people, 24 and under uh, for United States. And that's now um, 32 years ago. And I nice. still have the record. So I did okay, but I was not, I was not one of those guys that was going to be a contender against, uh, you know, Aaron Baker, Mark Allen, Paula newby Frazier, Dave Scott. They're amazing in my eyes to, to go for that fast, that long. And, you know, give me the two hour race so we can go out to breakfast after that. I was much preferred. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I totally appreciate that. So, Brad, how did you transition kind of away from the sport into, obviously, you know, along the way somewhere there were a couple of kids and as I understand it, that part of your, um, what you did post your career was you're really advocate for physical activity for kids and, and you set up um, running school. Well, how did I transition out of the sport? I, yeah. I, got, uh, I, got, I got violently forced out by mm. Hamish Carter, Bevan Doherty, and all the, the new breed of athletes that were kicking my butt. So there's a time as an athlete where you start to realize that you've lost a little bit of that juice, that magic, and the margin is so thin that if you're not on that uh, you know, peak performance path where everything's working for you, um, you're going to start slipping down the uh, performance rankings. And unlike a, a player in a, a major sport where, you know, you can maybe uh, hang on for four more years on the basketball team, you're gone from superstar to bench player. Uh, when I'm off a little bit, I'm out. So my last race was in New Zealand in uh, Wellington at the World Championships in 94. I believe I got uh, 12th or 13th yeah. and that wasn't going to do it for me. And so it's it's a really nice transition because there's no unfinished business, right? I, yeah. I, I wanted to come in first place, but I got in, I got 13th because there were 12 guys that were pretty awesome in front of me. Yeah. And so you see that writing on the wall. And yeah. of course, I you know love health and fitness and uh, motivating, inspiring others. And then having these little kids and wanting to guide them into a healthy lifestyle. Uh, that was a great phase in my life because my competitive aspirations went from kicking butt on the pro triathlon circuit to uh, kicking butt with uh, against these little kids as a coach in soccer, uh, track, and basketball basketball for many years. So I was one of those participatory coaches where I brought the heat, man. When we went to practice, they were going to get everything they could from coach Brad and I would not let up. And I made those guys tough because I played them hard. And so I had to keep in shape myself. So I had my own goals to kind of be the best physically active coach I could be. And that was a really fun phase from, uh, let's see, ages five until about 15. And then when my son and his buddies uh, enter freshman year of high school, all of a sudden coach Brad is not only uh, no longer the MVP of the team, but I can't even stay on the court or the field because these guys are too good. So uh, yeah. that's when I kind of transitioned to, you know, my present day, crazy, wacky athletic goals of doing speed golf and high jumping. And those are really fun because they're so different from uh, the extreme endurance demands of triathlon yeah. and going out there and just going steady state and running straight ahead as a runner, pedaling your pedal straight ahead and swimming in a straight line. And that's all fine and dandy for, uh, you know, my, my, aspirations as a as a pro triathlete and that was the best you know the best sport uh, intended for me uh, but now i want to develop those alternative uh, fitness capabilities and have my goals more coordinated with uh, longevity general yeah. health not compromising my health with that crazy extreme training that we did mm -hmm. but rather being able to go out to the running track and to be able to run a respectable 400 meters there's a lot of great research we put in a recent book keto for life about um, the longevity correlation with some uh, simple physical uh, challenges one of them is the mile run yeah. and the world famous cooper institute in dallas texas has identified this as the best longevity marker better than any blood test 
or blood pressure measurement you can get, but your ability to perform in the mile run at age 50. So you do an all out mile effort, mm -hmm. whatever shape you're in. And if you can do a respectable time, you have a really strong correlation with your chances of living healthily until age 80 and beyond. And if you can do a crappy time, if you can't summon the effort to go uh, under 13 minutes for a female, under 12 minutes for a male, which is it's not bad. I mean, it's it's mm. it's a very brisk walk or a slow jog. But if you can't do that at age 50, your chances of living healthily till age 80 are dramatically diminished from the exceptional people that can run female nine minute mile at age 50, male eight minute mile at age 50. So that's kind of fun stuff that we want to keep in mind. There's also push up competency, squat competency, mm. grip strength competency is mm. strongly correlated with longevity. So I'm trying yeah. to be strong, explosive, fit. Of course, I still have decent endurance but it's not that crazy stuff of going for hours and hours. Yeah. yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? I um, I listen to a lot of people who have that longevity focus and, and part of me is obviously very interested in that and optimizing that for myself. But the other part of me wants to ride my bike down to the pub and have a beer. Um, so, you know, like it's the, it's the balancing of those two. But mm -hmm. um, Peter Atia, I remember him explaining that um, really well and that, you know, you think about what you want to be like when you're 90. You know, what right. are those types of things you want to do? How do you need to train when you're 40 in order to still be able to, or to do those things when you're 90, you know? Awesome. Yeah. He talks about his um, centenarian Olympics on a recent show. Yes. And he was saying, these are the events I want to do when I turn 100. And one of them was like kettlebell squats with a weight correlating to the weight of a grandchild. Yeah. Um, you know, getting out of a pool deck, a simple thing. But when you're 100, uh, not so simple. And that's a great way to look at it. Uh, Simon Whitfield, the former Olympic gold medalist in triathlon and Olympic yes. silver medalist, I interviewed him. And you can see this on YouTube. It's just a one minute clip from a, a long interview that we have in, a, in an online course. But he said, I said, hey, what do you, you know, what are you doing these days now that you're retired from uh, this crazy uh, Olympic circuit that you've been on? And he says, well, um, today I'm, I'm coached by my 80 year old self. Nice. <laughs> I love it. That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't even have to say anymore, but of course, you know what he means. And he yeah. wants to honor that 80 year old self instead of imagine your 80 year old self shaking your head like, what are you doing again today? Yeah, uh, totally. That crazy stuff. Yeah. You know, the other thing, Brad, like if I think about my parents, like they're in their 60s now and, and I think about them at my age, they were a lot older at 43 than I am at 43, you know, like, and I feel like there's this generational thing as well. So people, people kind of correlate old age with also uh, um, uh, being more frail, not having strength and not actually living or move or being mobile and having much of a, of a life, if you like, because I feel like that's sort of the way that it was, but older people are younger these days and, mm -hmm. and old age doesn't necessarily have to correlate with failing health, if you like. It doesn't have to, but it seems to in, in many ways. And I mean, listeners to your show are in a different demographic. Yeah. Uh, congratulations to anyone interested in these types of topics. It's listened this, this far along in the show, I guess. And yeah. I think we have a certain segment of society that's really interested in this stuff, wants to learn more, wants to do the right thing. You see yeah. them in the mornings uh, at the class in the gym when it opens at 6 a.m. or whatever, uh, or out there on the trails hiking and doing challenges 
villages and uh, kayaking along the shore of the South Island and all these great things. And then you see a giant percentage of people that are sitting at home, uh, watching Netflix, eating processed food, uh, becoming victims or participants in the medical system with their, in the USA, do you know what the average number of prescriptions for uh, the, the uh, higher age groups are? Like yeah. uh, 65 and over? 12. So the average, the average person, if you open up their medicine cabinet, has 12 different bottles of whatever to help them get through the day. Uh, so that means if I have zero, then I'm contributing to the average there. That means, you know, some people probably have 20 or, or yeah. who knows what. Uh, so I feel like we're, we're hitting these forks in the road where, you know, when you turn 40 or you turn mm. 50 or you turn 60 or whatever, um, you can either have this steady decline that's so obvious and so prominent, or you can completely uh, neutralize the decline that comes from having a bunch of birthdays. And in fact, uh, do as good or better than when you were a younger person with less of a commitment to fitness. And it also doesn't take that long. So I think we've been programmed in the fitness industry to think that uh, staying healthy and fit is about pain and suffering and a huge time commitment. Yeah. And the opposite is true, but a lot of people are sitting on the sidelines because maybe they've tried, they hired their personal trainer and they did a book of 12 workouts and they were so sore and tired that they, they gave up after three months. And so I'm, I'm really excited to promote this concept called micro workouts. And I think it's a, a great breakthrough in the fitness industry. One of the greatest things that's happened uh, in decades, uh, just the idea that if you can go and do a very, very, brief explosive effort where you move your body and put out some work it's as simple as let's say uh being in your work cubicle mm -hmm. and dropping for a set of 20 deep squats mm. and even if you're a fit person go try and do 20 deep squats pause the recording now we'll come back when you're done but it's tough when you get yeah. to 16 17 18 if you can lower all the way to the ground or as low as your butt can get you've done yourself a little bit of a solid effort. You can piggyback that with doing some uh, chair dips, you know, or, or desk dips where you're, you're working the, the upper body. Uh, but even a minute here, a minute there, 30 seconds here, five minutes here in the morning, I have a video on YouTube called Brad Kern's Morning Routine. It's now become pretty elaborate. I have a great commitment to it. I've done it every single day without fail for four years. And so it's, it's long and involved, but for the average person, if you can just get out of bed and instead of reaching for your phone, which 84% of Americans do as the first thing they do when they wake up, hopefully it's less than New Zealand. And my, my heart is going out to, you know, the other countries, maybe they're a little more progressive, but you know, if you're reaching for your phone, all of a sudden you've been sucked into the digital world yeah. and thrown off your good intentions and your proactive mindset that you can go do something for yourself. So I'm, I'm really a big fan of saying, get up. And if you can spare five minutes and you know, commit to doing some physical movement for five minutes. It could be the, the sun salute stretches that are the foundation of yoga, just simple stuff. And mm -hmm. I, what I do is I drop on the ground. I do a bunch of core exercises and leg swings and hamstring flexibilities and uh, all these kind of things that contribute to uh, being better when I do my formal workouts. It's been really a life-changing thing because it makes me someone who's focused, disciplined, dedicated. Uh, I can speak about it publicly that I do this every single morning. And it makes me feel like I'm in control and I'm, you know, delaying the aging process and minimizing my risk of disease and decline. Yeah, no, it's awesome. And it kind of, this is absolutely not related, but it sort of reminds me of Tim Ferriss saying, you know, if you get up in the morning and you make your bed, 
you've already done something. You've already achieved something that day and you can kind of go on with that positive mindset. Um, I would make my bed regardless of whether Tim Ferriss actually told <laughs> me to make it or not, but that's what yeah. that kind of, you know, it brings to mind. And you highlight such a good point, Brad, you know, people think that this, this quest to be fit and optimize health has to involve five times a week at the gym for 45 minutes to an hour, or there's no point. And in their head, there's this real black and white approach, you know, but often also athletes are completely, um, they get sucked into this as well. They think, you know, if I go out and do my heart out two hour training session, but then I'm just on the couch all day. doesn't matter that I'm on the couch all day. And I th- feel like you and I would be aligned in this and that actually those other 18 hours of your day or whatever is super important. And you can't, those activities of daily living and actually being active throughout the day is just as important. Tell me, micro workouts, what sh- in your opinion, if someone were to be like, right, Brad told me I need to insert these into my day. As a culmination, what's your total kind of output would you expect? Is it 15 minutes a day? Is it 20? Does it matter? That's a good question. And probably personal preference would be the best way to, um, to, to, to have that guide you. Yeah. Um, I think you can even go to such extreme that you might get tired out. I, I think I, I played around with micro workouts so much that some days I'd be like, wow, I took 10 breaks from work. I didn't get much work done on my book, but I did go and do a set of these and a set of those. Uh, but as, that's sort of an aside. And I think um, the cool thing about them is that they don't tire you out as you prepare for, let's say, uh, a big goal, uh, a training session, a proper training session when you go down to the gym and get with your trainer or yeah. attend the, the the spinning class or whatever the thing you like to do uh, because they're so short in duration. So all they really do is make you a more active person where you're not sitting on your butt for long periods of time. You're getting the blood flowing. You're getting the oxygen delivered to your brain so you can come back to your computer and, and concentrate better. So a little goes a long way. And I think we're really now uh, reeling in the fitness scene from uh, a, a disastrous emphasis on struggling and suffering and no pain, no gain. So yeah, I would yeah. love to recommend the idea of doing these things that are not as strenuous as you're accustomed to uh, thinking you, you need to do to, to count as a workout, but just grab some hanging uh, stretch tubes. I use these things called NZ cords. I don't know why they're called NZ. It might mean New Zealand, Maybe. Uh, but they're, they're really popular. And you just hang them off uh, a, a clip off a door or off something hanging and you just pull them and do, you can do a bunch of upper body stuff. Mm. Uh, one of the great inventions I've seen in the fitness recently is called the X three bar. And ah, it's this yeah. device where you're pulling uh, these very uh, thick uh, rubber tube, r- rubber straps. And so you're applying resistance in a manner that's different than lifting heavy weight. So I think mm-hmm. it would appeal to a broader group of people that don't want to risk uh, throwing around these big barbells, uh, females included, who uh, generally are guilty of uh, loading up on cardio, but mm. not putting their body under resistance load enough mm. and not working that top end. Same with a lot of fitness enthusiasts in the gym or the joggers or the endurance athletes of the world. Um, they've never really put their body under uh, a maximum output load by doing, let's say, a series of short sprints over at the soccer field. And, you know, it takes uh, seven or eight seconds of sprinting, walk around for a while, recover, do another, do another. And this workout that takes only 10 minutes can have more fitness benefits than workouts lasting, you know, 10 times as long where you're jogging through the neighborhood for 12 kilometers or something, because we need to challenge that body for maximum output, short duration. That's when we get the anti-aging hormones flooding the bloodstream and you get strong 
stronger and more resilient with your bone density and all these things that are big markers of aging and decline. So I would say to anybody, just, you know, if it's something that can be really short in duration and really tax you, Mm. then you're done. You do it for 30 seconds and I, I can pull those cords or do one set of the X3 bar. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my, my biceps are, uh, have been fatigued sufficiently. So I don't even have to do anything for a couple days to that muscle group. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is really interesting what impact it can have on, on, you know, how you feel during COVID, our lockdown here, we had a, a, a lockdown for, for maybe six weeks and we had another brief kind of four week spurt, I think. Um, yeah, you guys did it right, huh? Yeah, it seems like we did actually. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I, do you like how I say thank you? Like I'm like personally responsible. Every for... New Zealander should take pride. And if we would look to you guys for more uh, other reasons, like, uh, you know, the, the grass fed uh, animal oh. products, it's so commonplace. You probably don't even, it's probably not even written on the, on the meat. It's just, you know, of course the lamb is grass-fed it's it's wonderful do you know what when i first dived into this whole kind of paleo primals um scene and it was about eight or nine years ago and mark sisson who i know that you work closely with he was one of the first people um who i came across and he was talking about grass-fed beef and so i did really spend like a couple of days thinking where am i going to get this grass-fed beef from (laughs) i haven't seen it anywhere i've never seen it and then of course this is so ignorant. I'm like, hang on, our beef is grass-fed. It's almost like saying fat-free marshmallows. Well, of course, those marshmallows are fat-free. <laughs> you don't even need to say it. So you're right, actually. We've, um, we're pretty lucky in that scene. Although what I would say is that the rhetoric of the issues in and around environmental sustainability with um, the production of meat and us eating meat and stuff like that like that's all been conflated from North America into the New Zealand environment so you know a lot of Kiwis are you know we are just as confused as a population as to um we buy into that uh the vegan uh argument of you know we should all be like reducing our meat consumption and and whatnot like it's like those messages from North America are completely translated into Mm. New Zealand I spend a lot of my time talking (laughs) trying to dispel that kind of stuff yeah, it's amazing. I mean, that's a great example of, I don't want to offend anybody, but you know, it's, it's propaganda at work where mm-hmm. these messages are being pounded into your brain. And of course, uh, they, anyone can reference science to, to argue their case, but then make these, this series of intuitive leaps such that if you uh, renounce eating animal products, you're a more morally superior human yeah. and you're doing a solid for the planet. Same with uh, if you're buying, a, I have a Prius. I, I bought my mom's old Prius off her, but you know, in the early days of Prius, if you bought a Prius, you were driving around uh, with this badge of honor that you were uh, concerned about the, uh, you know, the consequences of um, uh, carbon emissions. And I'm not sure about this. I'm just popping off. But like what it takes to make one of those batteries to stick in the Prius yeah. is maybe akin to a, a lifelong driving of a gasoline emitting car in terms of the carbon emissions in the factories where they they made these high tech things. Uh, and of course, um, there's there's so many ways to take this, but I think we have to default to personal experience rather than dogma 
and um, mixing in these ideas like moral superiority and throwing those into the mix to make you feel guilty or insecure or looking over your shoulder. And so um, if we can, if it would be better about testing uh, how various lifestyle practices affect us and kind of prioritize that rather than engaging in debate and getting our, our minds too far down the road from just practicality and what's sustainable too. I mean, we've, we've been promoting the ketogenic diet. There's so many benefits. It's amazing. The anti-inflammatory effects of making ketones. Uh, but if someone's not enjoying it or they're not uh, proceeding with the correct approach and there's too much suffering and sacrifice and deprivation, um, what we're going to experience is a lot of attrition and a rebound effect where mm. maybe their dietary habits and their body composition become worse than before they plunged into something that was uh, strict, unsustainable, and ill-advised. Same with fitness, as I mentioned before. If you go too hard and get too sore too frequently, your body's going to break down rather than improve. And so you're, you're really defeating the purpose of uh, pursuing fitness at the expense, you're coming at the expense of your health. Yeah, absolutely. And so Brad, if, since we've kind of tangented on to the, the nutrition space, how did you come across Primal, Mark Sisson? Like what, tell me how all of that evolved because I'm not clear and it's, I mean, it's awesome. Um, so how did you kind of yeah, begin the road of like looking at you nutrition? Because as I understand it, you were no different from anyone else in that triathlon scene, um, guzzling Greg Gatorades and, and whatnot. Well, uh, this has been uh, a long evolution, right? So back when I was an athlete, we were, you know, immersed into what we thought was healthy eating, the carbohydrate paradigm and stuffing a lot of food down our faces and burning carbs and eating more carbs. And of course, Mark Sisson and I go way back to our, our past as uh, long distance, uh, extreme endurance athletes. So he's older than me. So he was my coach when I was a professional on the circuit. So we had this relationship based on endurance sports dating back for decades. Uh, but then when he got into this uh, ancestral health scene and this concept of, uh, you know, you know, creating a modern lifestyle that honors the uh, the genetic expectations of our ancestry as homo sapiens and the hunter-gatherer experience as, uh, it, when it comes to eating. And of course, the movement patterns and the exercise patterns that are uh, informed by the evolutionary model, ancestral health, is a pretty exciting to be on the, um, on the ground floor of that stuff. So I started working with Mark uh, years after we were both done with the endurance scene and looking back and realizing how ridiculously unhealthy mm. a lot of these fitness pursuits were. Of course, we were fast and able to go straight ahead uh, and have that heart beat like crazy for uh, the duration of the race. But the hormonal effects, the immune suppression, the, the musculoskeletal injuries, just the fatigue and the, uh, uh, the stress on the heart from doing that extreme training uh, is, is being rethought by a lot of old timers who are suffering from health problems today, including a massive number of athletes that have uh, heart problems from training too hard and mm. thinking that they were the, the pictures of fitness and health, but all they were was fit for extreme performance and then compromising their health over time. So getting into this primal movement with Mark, we started writing books and promoting uh, the primal blueprint lifestyle with retreats and uh, online courses and a succession of books. And it's been a great run now. We've been writing together for 12 years and have a new book coming out in 2021 called Two Meals a Day, where we're trying to just cut through a lot of the controversy the confusion, the disputed science that people are, are worrying about. You can turn on a podcast and hear the debates on both sides. Mm -hmm. And we're just trying to simplify it and say, hey, look, whatever way you're eating, here's the thing. We eat too frequently. Yeah. 
we still have a lot of processed foods that are in the mix, even if we're somewhat devoted to uh, a vegan plant-based approach or even a carnivore style, hardcore paleo or something. Uh, we got to get that crap out of the diet and then eat less frequently and allow body fat to come to center stage as our primary energy, energy source, as it has been for 2 million years of human evolution. So uh, it was a great transition for me to be uh, this endurance athlete and then an ex-endurance athlete that was trying to stay healthy and realizing how narrow my fitness was over my lifetime as a, as a competitor and how I needed to broaden that in order to, uh, you know, stay strong and energetic and, and lively, uh, over the coming decades. So I mentioned trying to dominate those kids. Um, you know, I had trouble with my knees, uh, mm. turning and cutting on a soccer field to kick the ball or my, 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 uh, my lower back, I would have a problem here and a problem there. And it's because I wasn't a fit person. Yeah. I was just an endurance machine, good for very little else. And so I, kind of had to go, okay, well, maybe I better start working on my core, working on my upper body strength, working on my stability, my mobility. And then over on the diet side, it's like, geez, uh, this carbohydrate paradigm is now getting destroyed by uh, plenty of good science in, in the most recent couple decades to where we can't really uh, hang on by a string much longer, claiming that these processed modern foods are any good for us at all. And so this grain-based high carbohydrate diet that has been exported across the world for the past 50 or 60 years as mm -hmm. recommended as the the go-to way to be healthy is to cut out all that nasty fat and eat as many grain servings as you can um you know luckily that's been destroyed now and it's becoming you know more and more prevalent that we need to focus on uh, the basically the hunter-gatherer style foods that are nutritious colorful filled with uh, energy give you a high satiety level give you a, a dose of all the important nutrients that you need from the diet and get rid of the stuff that's nutrient deficient and a high carbohydrate, high insulin stimulating, and especially the processed fats, which are uh, very likely the worst thing that we can possibly ingest, but they still have a huge presence in the diet of, of many people, even unknowingly when they're dining out or cooking with uh, you know, oxidized vegetable oils and things like that. Yeah. And I, you know, as someone who is a, you know, I trained in nutrition science throughout university. And so to have discovered the, you know, the likes of Mark Sisson back about eight or nine years ago. Like I, I remember actually one of my, um, my ex-boyfriend's brother sent me a link to a Mark Daily Apple, a Mark's Daily Apple post. And um, I just went, oh, that's rubbish. Of course we need whole grains. And, you know, and I was very um, myopic in the learning mm -hmm. that I had because I thought, well, if, if I didn't learn it in my university classroom, well, clearly it's not science. So I had a real bias kind of going in. So it was actually quite mind blowing for me. Like when I finally kind of un uncovered this whole area of actually much more solid kind of information, I just, I, I almost couldn't believe it. Whereas you didn't necessarily have the nutrition training, but you had, you knew how you were eating, you know, and what was performing, I suppose, sorry, what was fueling your performance as an athlete. Were you equally kind of mind blowing when you started uncovering the basis of the way that we should be eating? 
Well, you know, that's an amazing insight when you talk about your training and the more training you've had and the more you've invested in your degree and in your studies, it's more, you're more likely to be uh, very rigid with your mindset and your fixed beliefs and, and so confident with your fixed beliefs because mm. you've had more training than the next guy. So maybe I was lucky that, uh, of course, I was super into it from uh, a very young age. I, I read all kinds of uh, books about nutrition and healthy eating and wanted to be on the cutting edge uh, throughout my career as an athlete and which which I, I basically you could say that I was because mm. I was choosing the whole grains instead of the refined grains and I was staying away from sugar and, and junk food uh, but you know the big bowls of pasta and the big bowls of cereal uh, you know were, were down down the ranking list from what we know today uh, are the most uh, valuable and nutritious foods so yes it was amazing exercise in putting aside fixed and rigid beliefs mm. and being open-minded and educating myself further and uh, trying things out most especially. And boy, I mean, that's a long time ago. And now we're, we're so far down this road. And so many of us can reference a 10-year history or a five-year history getting deep into this. But for me, uh, what's amazing was uh, just a couple of years ago now, in early 2019, uh, getting exposed to the message of the carnivore style yeah. eating pattern for healing and for uh, improving nutritional intake. And uh, I remember listening to Ben Greenfield and Dr. Paul Saladino have a, have a podcast that was absolutely mind blowing because, you know, we've been here saying to eat all these colorful plant foods as the basis of your diet. Mm. And there's so many nutritional benefits. And now here's someone saying, you know, you don't really need to eat those plant foods. Mm. Those have always been uh, survival foods for human rather than dietary centerpiece. Yeah. And here's the research showing that. And here's the research showing that uh, a slice of liver or a pasture raised egg has vastly superior nutritional profile than your kale salad or your super nutrition green smoothie or the great champions from the plant kingdom that everyone touts the acai bowl and all the things that yeah. have become popular where people are thinking they're doing the absolute best for themselves and can quite likely not only be of great benefit, but also be hurting themselves by consuming plants that have these natural plant toxins in them. So that one, you know, sent me spinning, uh, and it, it was again that that uh, that challenge to maintaining that open mind. Yeah, you're free to make a decision, a conclusion of one direction or another. But I am definitely on board with um, being open to new information and to trying and testing out new things and constantly trying to optimize. And frankly, uh, from the the day that I I first heard the podcast and then of course got a privilege of talking to Saladino myself directly and talking to the many other leaders, Dr. Sean Baker, uh, listening to the great stories from Amber O'Hearn and Michaela Peterson and the leaders of the carnivore movement. I've made a permanent and I guarantee a lifelong shift in my eating habits such that I no longer go looking for big piles of produce mm. uh, to consume on a regular basis in the name of health. And that's, you know, that's a big one. And then I instead go and make a deliberate effort to emphasize the superfoods that come from the animal kingdom, such as liver, such as uh, pasture-raised eggs, uh, shellfish, oily cold water fish, and all the stuff that has the very best nutrient density. And those are the centerpieces of my meals today. I'm not, I'm not strict on the carnivore thing because I don't have to be, I don't experience, uh, you know, big problems, but yeah. so many people do unknowingly that it's worth a 30-day experiment to be sure to try some of these restriction diets and see if you feel a lot better. And that's, I think, 
you raise a really important point, right? I was just speaking to Craig Emirich from um, Keto Adapt and he's got Lyme disease and he said, you know, he was keto for about 10 years and then they discovered that what he was experiencing with his chronic pain was Lyme. Um, And he actually, so while some people do get some real improvement just by going keto for Lyme because he'd already been keto, he actually needed to kind of take it to that next level and carnivore for him has been super helpful with helping him manage his symptoms. Um, But Brad, like I've like, so you, you aren't on a big ass salad for lunch then basically. No. And what's really funny is as I started thinking about this argument in favor of the carnivore nosotail strategy and, and the possible exclusion of plant toxins from your diet as a test, I started to look at these meals mm. and lose my appetite for the foods that have been the centerpiece of my life, my whole life. So, you know, the wonderful steamed broccoli with the butter slathered on it or the big ass salad, which I had, you know, that would rival anybody's rival Mark Sisson's. And I'd look at the bowl I just prepared. And uh, I came to this realization that, you know, psychology is a big thing in our diet and our food choices. And a lot of the reason I liked a certain food was because I was convinced that it was healthy for me. So I kind of made myself like it. Yeah you know, and then your, your taste buds habituate and your brain habituates to it. And you feel good when you eat a salad because you're congratulated by uh, health enthusiasts uh, all over the world because you're on board with them. And then, you know, the marketing messaging has been in our brains and has a huge influence. And so to unwind some of that stuff and stare down at this plate going, why don't I feel like eating this, uh, this pile of produce that I just stir fried? Uh, That was a really funny one. Yeah. And now I'm, I'm not even sure, like, you know, I love a grass-fed steak. Isn't it delicious the way it was cooked? And um, some people will argue, uh, I think uh, Saladino was referencing a study on my podcast where they did like MRI, uh, functional MRI testing on on vegans that were chewing uh, steak. And it, it, there, was, there, was, there was like proof that it was actually uh, providing uh, this, you know, positive uh, response in the brain, even though they'd sworn these things off because of the nutritional benefits of of the food. And I think we do feel good eating uh, nutrient dense food because, uh, you know, the, the body has energy. We don't feel like crap after a good meal. We feel like crap after eating junk food. And so there's some of those physical connections, but boy, the psychological part of like being aligned with your stated goals and beliefs, uh, if I'm going to indulge in something that's, you know, not on my, uh, not on my typical diet right now, I might have some misgivings about it in, in the brain and, and wonder if it's worth it. Now, some things sneak under the bar there so that if my son's making one of his cheesecakes, I will have a slice and I'll enjoy the heck out of that. Yeah. I don't care how many cups of sugar he put in because it's not going to be my main go-to meal uh, on everyday life. But we also have to be happy and celebrate life once in a while too. But you know, we want to distinguish between kind of habitual instant gratification where you're reaching for that pint of ice cream in the fridge because you've had a long busy day and you want to go sit down and watch Netflix instead of doing a micro workout and eating something that's uh, nutritious and still tastes good. Uh, Those are the kind of things we have to carefully unwind to realize, is this thing really necessary and important right now to give you pleasure and improve your life? Or is it just a habit that's been ingrained and you're getting this uh, quick hit of instant gratification when the thing goes on your tongue and then you've swallowed it and that part's over and now you're just, uh, you know, compromising your health with these dietary habits that aren't serving you. Yeah, absolutely. And I did like the way that you mentioned, try it for 30 days and see how, you know, see how you feel on it. 
because I think that's such a good kind of entry point for people. So they don't think, oh, I'm going to have to give up, quote unquote, give up all the things that I love um, to try this out from here to the end of time, because that's not what it's about. It You might feel a certain way. How good could you feel if you make these changes in your diet? And I also think sometimes people have these expectations around how good they can feel just by changing their food and only for a short period of time you know so I feel like we need to almost manage people's expectations around what they're going to experience because the brain pathways and those reward pathways have been so well oiled for years and years and years in terms of patterns of behavior and responses to food that they're not just going to go away so people make initial changes and, and and I like you say you know try it for 30 days see how you feel as an initial kind of like um, proof of concept, if you like, and then mm. trying to figure out, you know, how do we then set up the habits to to make this kind of like a long-term thing, I think is, to my mind, that's important as well. And the way that you talk about it, Brad's very, it's, it's kind of realistic in that too. It's like, no, you're never able to eat cheesecake and, you know, like, but recognizing that it's what you do typically that makes a difference rather than what you do every day, I suppose. No, wait. Then what? Then those. What I'm trying to say. Then those one-offs. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's pretty deep there. There's a lot to unwind in what you just said, and a lot of things come to mind. Um, and uh, one of them is like, do we really need a, a payoff every single time we make a lifestyle change? Like the reason I don't eat certain foods is because I know they're not good for me, mm. even though. Uh, I'm not adversely affected by, uh, maybe I can have a slice of cheesecake every night uh, for the rest of my life and I wouldn't feel any different except for, uh, I, I would say, boy, that, that tasted good. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing things without getting that payoff just because I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't feel like uh, mixing in with uh, that type of lifestyle. Yeah. And uh, same with, um, you know, an exercise commitment. Well, maybe you don't every time feel like doing it, but you know, a, a lot of the stuff with my morning routine, some mornings, I don't feel like doing it. I feel like reaching for my phone yeah. or doing something else, but I don't want to get injured three months from now because I've let my core stability go. And I haven't, uh, you know, maintained this commitment that is going to give me a, a future payoff, you know? So I think that's, there's something to throw in there, especially when I hear this uh, term, everything in moderation. Yeah. And a lot of times I recoil when people say that, because it feels like a cop-out to enable you to not make a full commitment to healthy living or longevity because, hey, everything in moderation after all. And I'm like, well, wait a second. Um, at least in America here today, we have the fattest and sickest population in the history of humanity. Mm. We've never had, you know, we have two thirds of humans in, in this country are classified as either overweight or obese. They're beyond the body mass index guidelines. So two out of three people are completely off track with any sort of commitment to healthy living. Mm. And so now you're going to tell me everything in moderation in, in the developed world where there's so much, you know, disease and dysfunction, you're going to be an average person and, and live an average lifespan and all these things that personally, I'd rather be exceptional than average because average is pathetic today. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I'd like to be an average athlete at the Olympic training center, 
that's great. (laughs) Or, or, you know, at the, at the centenarian compound where all people who are healthy over a hundred go to, to swim laps and do the the Peter Atia Olympics. Uh, But boy, when we're, we're talking about how pathetic the the state is today, um, I want to be, you know, on that, on that average of 12 prescription medications. um, I'd like to be so far below that, that I'm, I'm off the charts at a zero. Yeah, absolutely. And moderation challenging in today's environment when everything is excess you know like Mm. food and technology and and just stuff materialism everything is just at you know more is always more whereas actually that's you know from a health perspective not necessarily the case however I've got to ask you about your morning routine Brad because I've got to say the way that you described it earlier did make me think that it could rival Ben Greenfield's and he is a very big morning routine type of guy, as I understand it. Talk me through, what do you do? What is it? What time? What time do you start? Oh, thanks for asking. Uh, there's there's no one that can rival Ben Greenfield. <laughs> he is a superhuman cyborg. And you pick up one of his books, like Boundless, his most recent book, that you can actually deadlift as a workout because it's so <laughs> gigantic. Uh, but I do not know how that guy does it. He is such an amazing output of information and uh, experimentation and living the lifestyle that he talks about. Yeah. And so... Um, I think some people, maybe at first, if you go over to that channel, since we recommended him, you might be put off by, you know, the extremism of all the things that he's doing. But what he's doing is he's living this extreme life uh, for our benefit. So we can pick and choose some of the cool things that he talks about and not necessarily have to spend all day doing this stuff. So I'm constantly trying to watch out for, let's say, my my homies, my, my childhood friends that I grew up with who have disparate types of careers. Mm -hmm. Some of them work in Hollywood as uh, attorneys or in in the world of real estate or uh, doctors or lawyers or who knows what they're doing, Uh, but they don't have a complete uh, immersion into health and fitness like I do. So coming from their perspective, when I'm writing a book or doing a podcast, I want to, you know, express myself to people uh, living real world challenges and make things uh, doable and sensible on that note, rather than just uh, bragging about my super awesome, uh, you know, ice chamber that I jump in every morning and then go into the sauna after that and then go for a workout and then go for a meditation session and then spend 47 minutes preparing a healthy meal. Mm. And I think there's a lot of that out on the internet where you're kind of made to feel inferior if you don't have the glistening six pack abs and all your shit together, like the person who's touting uh, their product or service. So I I'm, I'm, want to be a normal, sensible person about this, but I'm super excited and enthusiastic to share. And I think that's, you know, uh, I appreciate the chance to contribute. So this morning routine thing uh, emerged because I realized that when I went out and did my hard workouts and I love sprinting and high jumping, mm. right? So I do these incredible sessions that were very challenging uh, about once a week, maybe even once every uh, eight or nine days. And then the next three days were not pretty. So I'd wake up and my calves were just in knots and I'd be tiptoeing around the house for a day a do, day or two. I'd do very little exercise because I was just recovering from this brutal session. And I realized, of course, I do all different types of workouts, but I wasn't doing much to approximate the challenge of what I did on my toughest day. Mm. So I realized, what if I threw something in where I was challenging my core and my hamstring flexibility and my hip flexor mobility uh, more frequently? So when I stepped out onto the track on that track workout day, it wasn't going to be so traumatizing and so stressful because I was doing, let's say, uh, a set of drills at the end of every minor jogging session that I did. And I 
spend a couple minutes doing that. And I, I have uh, videos up on YouTube, uh, a beginner uh, workout drills, running drills and advanced running drills. So, you know, spending a minute here, a minute there, like I talked about in that micro workout concept, that was going to chip away at my baseline fitness level. So when it was time to launch a hard workout, I was at a higher fitness level than otherwise being typing on my computer until Wednesday and then going and crushing myself and then typing on my computer for six more days. So I started this morning routine. Um, the first thing I, when, when I first started, I did it in bed because yeah. I wanted to make sure I would do it. So I wouldn't even get out of bed. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd kick me a more out of bed or she's up earlier than me anyway. So I'd have the bed. Okay, there's the bed. Uh, and then I realized like anything you do that's core strengthening, if you're on a mattress, it's so much easier than if you're on the ground. So I left the bed behind yeah. uh, years ago, but like my first morning routine is still on YouTube. So there's two videos. If you type Brad Kern's morning routine, you'll laugh because you'll see the first one where I'm sinking into this mattress doing these core lifting exercises. So now the one on the ground is uh, more legit. But what's happened over time is that it's become a fixture. It's become a habit in my life. Mm. And it's very, very difficult to wire in new habits, yeah. especially for adults. I don't know about a three-year-old, maybe so, but um, we have a very hard time changing our ways, changing our fixed beliefs and implementing new habits. So it took a long time and I had to proceed at a very gentle pace to make sure this was going to rise to that category of habit rather than quote unquote, cool workout to do uh, most days or whatever your in-between stuff is. And so that was my commitment as a gator. I'm going to do this every day, no matter what. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to start out with just something that takes five minutes. So it won't bother my, my day too much. Mm. And then we finally decided to film it. So my, my main man, Brian, our filmmaker at, at Primal World came over and uh, we filmed it and we found it took 12 minutes, not five, but I thought it was my five minute morning routine, yeah, yeah. but I loved it so much. And it was so ingrained that it actually took 12 to do it. Now that was four years ago. Yeah. Uh, today I keep over time. It's the same exact thing every single day. Yeah. So I don't have to use my brain. All I do is count. It's sort of like meditation. Cause all I'm thinking about is the count. Yeah. And when I get to 35, I switch legs and then I switch to the next exercise and do 20 forward, 20 backward, that kind of thing. And if I lose count, my rule is I got to start over. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not flashing through text messages. I'm not listening to a podcast. I'm not multitasking. I'm just into this routine. Mm. And so now today it takes a minimum of 35 minutes which is way too long to recommend to someone out of the gate. Mm. But for me, it's grown over time very gently to be this pretty badass workout. A lot of the things I throw in, like I'll throw in a new move, maybe throw out a move that I don't like as much. And some of these moves have become really challenging now, mm -hmm. but it's only because I took these baby steps, baby steps, baby steps to integrate this as my morning starting point that it's really strong and powerful now. And it's a, it's actually a pretty darn good workout. Uh, but I want to be very careful. Like I'm not going to add more anytime soon because I don't want to get to that tipping point where it's like, oh, shoot, I'm really stacked up today. I got an early podcast and then I have to run off to this and I'm going to miss it. Yeah. And, you know, the habit's going to fade. So it's right in that sweet spot where that's a lot to ask for someone that's, a, a, you know, especially you got little kids crying and waking up and, you know, it's not sustainable for you. But for anyone, 
to start with this commitment to doing something for five minutes that entails movement, mm. ideally also getting outdoors and exposing your eyeballs to direct sunlight. Yeah. So in my video, my new morning routine video, I'm outside in Lake Tahoe. This is a mountain climate up here and I'll be out there in sub-freezing temperatures doing it. Amazing. And it's also like a cold exposure session and I get warm really quickly too. Yeah. So um, it's, you know, it it's locked in and that's really fun to uh, experience when you've, you've gone down the road far enough to where you don't have to think about it, worry about it, use willpower or creative energy to keep it going. Yeah, sure. So across the course of a week, how many hours would you spend actually working out, do you reckon, Brad, now? Uh, you know, what I've done at age 55 here is I've really downsized my formal workouts because when I, uh, you know, would go to the gym and hit it for an hour with whatever a weight training circuit or a, a organized session, um, I would be too tired after, mm. you know, I'm, 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 I'm not capable of, you know, being a world beater anymore and the recovery time would take too long. And so over the last, let's say five years, I've shifted from these, uh, formal workouts to, uh, more of a mixture of micro workouts where I might get in uh, a, a session that's maybe on the heels of my morning routine, right? So mm. it's 35 minutes of that. And then I'll go and do the X3 bar, which only takes 10 minutes mm. for a very, very difficult, challenging session. Or I might do a different type of uh, like a sprint workout is maybe I'm 30 minutes at the track total. So all my stuff does not last very long, except for uh, a really easy cardio of, you know, hiking for five hours a couple times this summer. We had wonderful hikes once in a while. Uh, but that that pattern of going to the gym, you mentioned this earlier a little bit, like going every day for 45 to 60 minutes to to make sure you get a, a attendance gold star at the, uh, the, the morning boot camp class, that stuff can easily get out of balance and turn into a chronic overproduction of stress hormones. So I'm like, hit it and quit it and go home. And that's a much better strategy for me than just putting in the uh, too many hours. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, Lake Tahoe, this time of year, you'd be absolutely primed to jump in for a bit of cold immersion, I'd imagine. I'm trying to go every day year round. The water temperature right now is uh, 44 Fahrenheit. Uh, so in Celsius, that's just over just over zero, and um, it's wonderful. It's so energizing, invigorating. I'm working on a book on cold exposure right now. Awesome. But I think a lot of people they get the wrong idea when I when I mention it, and they think, oh, that's crazy. What what a you know what what a what a wild thing to do. I'd never try that. Mm. But we got to make the distinction that I'm not going in there and getting myself cold and uncomfortable and, and shivering and chattering and feeling like crap. So it's an invigorating plunge into water. Yeah. And as you become a practitioner, you can spend more time in there. So I'm spending maybe four or five or six minutes in there because I've been doing this for several years. Mm. But for anyone to think about this as a concept, it's like running out to that lake in the winter, jumping in, you're, you, you get that uh, initial shock and that hormonal boost maybe breathe through it and try to stay in there for mm. a minute rather than 10 seconds. And that's what we're talking about more so than some torture chamber of, uh, of suffering. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually was just recently part of a seven day cold immersion challenge, but here in New Zealand, um, like even the tap water just doesn't seem that cold. And certainly uh, like uh, the sea temperature and stuff was not cold and all the outdoor pools I swim in aren't cold. So it was actually a miserable failure on my part. And I don't have, I don't have like a, a chest freezer that I can go jump in. So um, maybe that'll be a winter thing. Um, 
Brad, you're big on male hormone optimization, as I understand it, which makes perfect sense given your history as an elite athlete to then kind of have the the wall lifted from over your eyes in terms of the negative impact that can have on hormones. So what are your main messages around men? Maybe your age, younger, a little bit older, what are the things that they might that you focus on to help them optimize their hormones? And then obviously we've talked morning routine, cold immersion, a, a good diet. You know, if you had to say to someone, I don't know, three things they could do, what would that be? Oh, thanks for asking. Yes, it's it's been this project with uh, my my friends at Ancestral Supplements, and they source all their organ supplements from New Zealand, the grass-fed cattle, yeah. and bring them to the world. And so it's been really fun to work with these guys. It's a great product, and they have a whole line of different animal organs. But we decided to do one for uh, specifically for testosterone, male hormone optimization. Nice. So it's called Mofo. Uh, male optimization formula with organs. Yeah. And so my role is to really promote this uh, this lifestyle approach where if you're going to swallow something in a bottle, you want to have all the other factors going for you in life so that you're going to get maximum benefit mm. from a really potent product that's going to help stimulate testosterone production naturally and increase the nutrient density of your diet. So I created this thing called the MOFO mission, and it's a series of 10 assignments, lifestyle assignments to optimize testosterone. Of course, a lot of these things are going to contribute to your general health, but we're trying to focus in on this demographic of the aging male on the planet who still wants to, uh, you know, have a little passion and competitive intensity in life rather than sit on the sidelines and watch, uh, you know, Aussie rules on the telly or, uh, you know, just watch other people people participate. Yeah. And so it extends to all different areas, uh, especially addressing all the testosterone disruptors in hectic high stress modern life, not sleeping enough, being exposed to the environmental estrogenic compounds, such as consuming food and drink out of plastic, yes. uh, consuming the wrong foods like soy corn and flax that have 200 times more phytoestrogens than other foods. And there's also some nuance here that I'm really interested in and I'm doing more research, but uh, the effect of, let's say, dysfunctional relationship dynamics on your testosterone is massive. It could be one of the biggest ones of all. And I've had on my podcast, the B-Rad podcast, uh, John Gray. I don't know if New Zealanders have heard of him. He's the number one best-selling relationship author of all time yes. in the world with his Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, been translated into dozens of languages. And he's been writing books for the last 25 years. Uh, but he uh, has a great uh, recent book called Beyond Mars and Venus, where he talks about the hormonal underpinnings of relationship, healthy relationship dynamics and what you can do to boost your female partner's estrogen so she feels whole and womanly and nurtured and supported. And on the male side, to have that testosterone boosted so you feel like strong and uh, have, have high uh, desire for your partner and you can be the man that you dream of being. But if you're bickering and arguing and disrespecting each other, these things destroy your hormonal levels, not just the male testosterone, but the female estrogen, which is the dominant female that gives you those female qualities and gives you those male qualities. Mm. So, uh, uh, you asked me for three things. One of them is uh, quit being a jerk to your wife or your girlfriend. Brilliant. And start being coming from kindness and gratitude and treating her like the queen that she deserves to be. And maybe in return, you'll get uh, superior treatment and have things, you know, pick up and all those different categories that mean a lot to you. But I think we we so easily fall into ruts 
and negative communication patterns that this can really harm. Of course, we can experience it as a, as a drop in energy when you have an argument or you have uh, unwellness in the home, but it also just destroy your hormones and counteract any of those great efforts you make to sleep just right and eat just right and do your workouts. Absolutely. So that's number one. Yeah, that's awesome. And just before I, I get you to go on to your, your next two, I, I, I just was thinking, you know, stress comes from the brain you know, and all of these hormonal pathways, they all start from the brain. So it makes sense that if you are in a, in a, in a, in a charged environment where you're under a lot of stress from relationship stress, then it makes perfect sense as to why you can't really have your hormones optimized in that setting, I suppose. Relationship trauma. Very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Um, let's go to uh, the, the second thing yes. I would think of is um, you got to perform some form of brief explosive physical output mm -hmm. and again these workouts can last 10 minutes or or, or two minutes what have you uh, but you got to put your body under resistance load or uh, explosive uh, sprinting are, are two good examples that could be on a stationary bike or could be running ideally with the weight bearing being additional benefits but um, you know that is the essence of anti-aging is use it or lose it. Mm. And so if you haven't, uh, you know, lifted a heavy bar in recent times or tried to run as fast as you can across the, uh, the athletic field, uh, these attributes are going to decline really steeply. And just doing trickling in with a little bit of this and a little bit of that can make a massive difference. You'll obviously immediately get this hormonal spike as soon as you do your first sprint or do your first set of uh, difficult resistance exercise. Could be a set of push-ups or a set of squats like I talked about mm. uh, in the um, in the cubicle, but you're going to get a hormonal spike right away. Yeah. So it's instant payoff uh, to throw that into your life as that brief explosive effort. Awesome. And finally, Brad, what do you reckon? Number three? Oh my gosh. So I have my, I have my list of 10 assignments, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to pick and choose. Yeah. And of course we have sleep. Uh, all, all the assignments are named, you know, hit it hard was the one I just talked about. Yeah. Uh, quit being a jerk to your wife or girlfriend. Uh, but that. number one is called sleep is number one. Yeah. And the thing is, we've all heard that. We all acknowledge that sleep is so important. We're doing our best we can. But I also, maybe I'll take this chance to mention that there's your good night sleep, mm. which is so important. But we also, for the first time in the history of humanity, we have this obligation to take downtime because yeah. we can be constantly entertained now with a mobile device in our hands like never before. So our grandfather, grandmother, uh, father and mother, the one generation ago had all kinds of downtime in daily life. When they were at university, they went to their class and then they walked across the campus and sat on a bench and reviewed their notes and then got up and waited for uh, the bus stop and sat on the bus and looked out the window at the beautiful New Zealand countryside with the grass-fed cattle eating their grass. And all these times where the brain was just soaking up uh, the intense uh, experience of the 90-minute lecture, right? Today, Oh my gosh, when my kid was in high school, I took him down to UCLA uh, in Los Angeles as he wanted to go there and we crashed into an, an actual class going on and we were just standing in the back and noticing that like two thirds of the students 
at one of the great universities of the world uh, were on a device while the professor was giving a lecture on ancient Greek uh, uh, architecture and uh, you know, showing slides and stuff. And one guy had a really cool snowboard video. Maybe it was from the South Island of New Zealand. I don't know. But, you know, everybody was distracted and mm. multitasking mm. and just working this brain nonstop. So the idea of putting in downtime, I'm going to put that in as number three. So we have... Um, Number one was quit being a jerk to your, your partner. And uh, number two was, you know, do some brief explosive efforts. And then number three is find find a chance to take some downtime, you know, stare off into space for a little bit, pet your dog for five minutes instead of 12 seconds. Mm. That's going to be my number three right now on Mickey's show. Thank you so much. It was so fun. Oh, I love it. And particularly because, of course, we already kind of espoused the benefits of good diets. So you didn't need to mention that. And um, I'm sure there are other... Like if you had to choose just one more, Brad, what would it be from your list of ten? Oh my gosh, um, we we already we already talked about this a little bit, but the objective to just get up and move more in daily life yeah, and have yeah. a generally more active life yeah. is now being validated by a, a lot of science, exercise science, and, and health science as being more important. Than having a devoted fitness regimen mm. so good for you all you people going to the gym and have your membership and you do your classes but like you said there's 168 hours in a week and if you go to the gym for an hour every single day that's pretty fantastically awesome but that's only seven hours there's another 161 hours every single week where we're going to be watching you from the sky camera uh, the, the secret satellite camera and seeing how many of those hours are spent in a seated position yeah and oh my gosh when you talk about commuting and sitting and doing a, a knowledge job at, at a desk and then spending your leisure time uh, consuming digital entertainment, which of course you deserve to rest and relax, but that's a lot of stillness. So uh, if we're going to go number four, it's just get up and move around more, walk, uh, foam rolling counts as a form of movement. Yeah. Of course, yoga, tai chi, all that stuff, but just trying to figure out a way to uh, move the body more throughout the day is a huge health and hormonal benefit. Yeah, that's awesome. Brad, like you are such a wealth of information. I'm not quite sure how you managed to fit everything in your brain, all of that knowledge that you've got um, that you can just, you know, easily just kind of bring out. I mean, I absolutely love it. Um, you're very easy to find on the interweb, which is really awesome. And of course, I'm going to put links out to, um, I'll put links in the show notes to your website, to your books. And like, cause you've done a lot over the years, starting with Primal Fitness and Primal Blueprint, right up into Keto Reset and Keto for Life. And now of course you've got two meals a day. I'm really looking forward to seeing kind of that roll out. Um, thank you, Brad. You've been amazing. Hey, great show, Mickey. Uh, I appreciate your interview style. We covered a lot of stuff and it was a nice flowing conversation. I hope the listeners enjoyed it. And yeah, connect with me. Go to bradkearns.com. You'll find everything there and um, love, to, love to hear from you, especially New Zealanders get special, special privileges. If you send me an email from far away, we get so excited and uh, love to hear from you. Awesome. Thanks, Brad. So I hope that you had your pen and paper out for that one and 
in addition, anything that we have talked about which you are not quite sure about, just ping me a, uh, a question on social media or touch base with Brad. He's always really receptive to people coming and asking him questions and you can absolutely get hold of him on his website as well, www.bradkearns.com and definitely check out his podcast, b.rad, if you haven't already. Next week, we have on the podcast Nicole Bitter. And now Nicole is the wife of Zach Bitter and is an accomplished runner in her own right. And so we chat all about her most recent win at the Havelina 100 and also what she does in terms of preparing for an event like that in her base training and day-to-day -day life. In addition to the fact that she is a full-time uh, solicitor, so it's a matter of kind of juggling all balls really um, for Nicole. So tune in for that next week. And also don't forget if you haven't already, hop onto the link in the podcast notes for Shreduary and this is your opportunity to really start the year running with regards to your health and fitness goal or at least in February now that we've got all of kind of January holiday time over and done with. It is a 28 day diet and exercise program that incorporates 15 to 20 minutes of HIT, which has been developed by my mates Rebecca Keat and Siri Lindley who are world-class triathletes in their own right and they really know what it takes to train people into optimal fitness. In addition to a 28-day meal plan that incorporates some time-restricted eating, it is an, a carb-appropriate approach that is based on protein and an abundance of vegetables but also really delicious and easy to prepare meals. You can either just get the program by itself or you can also upgrade to include Zoom calls with us every week so we can have a one-on-one -on -one nutrition and fitness Q&A, which will also be recorded if you can't make it at the time that the call is being taken. So, Shredduary people, the podcast notes has all of the information you need in and around that. In addition to that, if you've got any questions on anything or you'd like me to speak to anyone, head on over to social and find me there. So you've got at Mickey Willardin for Twitter and Instagram and Mickey Willardin Nutrition on Facebook as well as MickeyWillardin.com for my website where you'll find all of my programs, an opportunity to book consultations, to have a one-on-one, -on -one, or just ping me an inquiry. Until next time, guys, have a fab week and look forward to catching up soon.